So we are working on the pizza situation, which I hear is not outside. So stay tuned for updates on the pizza. Um, in the meantime, we're going to get started. So I'm really lucky today to um, be able to introduce to you guys Dr. Beth Cox-Williams. So she's currently an assistant professor of anesthesiology here at the University of Maryland. Um, she did her undergraduate degree at the College of William and Mary and then got her MD at Duke. Um, she did her internship at Georgetown and then went up to Boston, where she did her residency in anesthesiology at Mass General. Um, she was a fellow in critical care medicine at MGH and then did a fellowship also in health services research. She worked as an instructor um, in anesthesiology at MGH Harvard programs before we were lucky enough to recruit her down here to the University of Maryland. And she's going to give us a talk today on airway management. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I'm sorry about the pizza. I feel like whenever I organize a lecture and there's no food, I feel personally responsible for the for the lack of food. Um, so airway management, obviously a huge topic that people spend years and years learning how to do. Um, so the goal of my talk today was I wanted to talk about the approach to the airway and basically how to stay out of trouble and not make anything worse. So that is kind of my goal on a daily basis is not to make anything worse and keep myself out of trouble. So pre-intubation evaluation is key, okay? And obviously you won't always have the luxury of time before you have to intubate somebody, but what you want to look at is their history. So the history of previous airway difficulty is better than anything else. Higher positive predictive value, lower negative predictive value, just the best thing you can get. <clears throat> so talk to the patient, right? So you need a general history about, you know, have they been intubated before, what things happen. Um, I always ask people, has anyone ever told you they had trouble getting the breathing tube in? And in anesthesia setting, the standard of care is to give the patient a letter saying that they were a difficult intubation and hopefully what they did to get the tube in, what they did that didn't work, kind of all those details. Um, oftentimes these letters get mixed, get missed, people don't understand, they need to keep them, that kind of stuff. Um, with an electronic medical record, it's getting a lot better because you can have a flag on the record, but you don't always have it. Um, if they tell you that they had broken teeth, if their lip got cut, or they had a very, very sore throat, all of that should get your attention because none of that should happen <laughs> in a normal setting. So if anything like that did happen, then something probably went down. So you also don't want to be falsely reassured by a benign history. Okay, so are they 100 pounds heavier than they were when they had an easy intubation? Has their cervical spine arthritis gotten worse? Did they get radiated? Are they super fluid up? Did they just get resuscitated for sepsis and they're like five or six liters up? It's gonna be a very different airway. Um, and were they recently extubated? Did they get extubated yesterday and now they have to be re-intubated? That's a whole different thing. And then where do you find prior intubation records? Do you guys know where to find the anesthesia intubation records? They're kinda of hard to find. So what you wanna do in Epic is go to scan the scanned anesthesia records. <coughs> Sorry, I have a cold um, chart review procedures, and then you'll see this tab, and in there is something you can download and then look at. Eventually, all of our anesthesia records are going to be going to Epic, and it'll look a lot better, but right now they're two different computer systems, so that is where you would look. Also under this procedures tab, you'll see um, the emergency department and the floor setting as well. So your airway exam. So just generally look at the person. How tall are they? How much do they weigh? What do you think their BMI is? How is their weight distributed? Are they an apple or a pear, right? So are a lot of their weight up top or do they kind of just go out at the bottom? Looking at their mouth, and we're gonna talk about each of these individually. What oral pharyngeal structures can you see? That's your mom and potty class. How much can they open their mouth? What are their teeth like? Are they able to bite their upper lip? 
And then around the mouth and neck, you want to look at thyromental distance, how mobile their neck is, and then the size of their neck as well. So model potty score has been around a very, very, very long time. Um, and what you're looking at is how much of the mouth, uh, how many structures you can see when you have them open their mouth really wide. Okay, so class one, you can see every all of the soft palate. Class two, you can see the uvula. <clears throat> class three, you can only get the base of the uvula. And class four, the soft palate, you can't see anything. Okay. Um, looking at reviews, this is an older paper, but kind of what we base on now by Samson and Young. Um, they looked at a big group of OB intubations and surgical patients. Most of the patients that were impossible to intubate were class four. So how good is the Mollen potty score? This is a meta-analysis of 30,000 patients. Um, and it's, it's okay. So you can see that the sensitivity is like 0.76, specificity 0.77. So it's pretty good, but it's not the only thing you're going to look at. So we talked about the neck a little bit. So the reason atlanto-occipital mobility is so important is for direct laryngoscopy, your goal is to align the oropharyngeal and laryngeal axis, like you can see in, in this gentleman right here. All right? So look at how much that neck has to crank back to make that happen. So your normal extension is 35 degrees, so you're tipping up a fair amount. Less than 20 degrees is an issue. Um, keep in mind that people with limited mobility can compensate with mid-cervical mobility. So they're not moving this part, they're moving this part. And that's not what you need to get a, a clear line of sight. So it's really easy to overestimate. You'll also get a lot of patients where you'll say, can you move your neck? And they're like, oh yeah, I do great. And you'll say, okay, well, extend for me. And they'll do one of these numbers, right? Because they have rheumatoid arthritis or something. So it's always fine to ask them how they're doing, but make sure you actually verify how much they can move their neck. And why wouldn't you be able to move your neck? Um, trauma, ankylosing spondylitis, and rheumatoid arthritis, which is most of what we see for these folks who have limited uh, mobility. So thyromental distance. You're measuring between the bony point of the mentum of the mandible and the thyroid notch. Okay, if it's less than three finger breaths, then these are like man fingers, not my tiny fingers. Um, positive predictive value of 28% for a difficult intubation. So when you're assessing the thyromental distance, that's a really good time to palpate the laryngeal cartilage and that then assess the submandibular components. So mouth opening. Anything less than three and a half centimeters, which is like two finger breaths, predicts, predicts a difficult intubation. You also want to see if they can protrude their jaw forward. Um, it's a relative risk of 10.3 of difficult intubation. Um, and why can't people open their mouth? So a lot of different reasons listed here, but I kind of like to divide it into something that is gonna get better when you paralyze them and something that's not gonna get better when you paralyze them. So if you have you know, pain in your jaw or some other reason, once you put them to sleep and paralyze them, then it's gonna be fine. But if you have fixed trismus or um, tissue contracture, that is not gonna get better. Okay, overview. So we talked about malum potty, head extension, thyromental distance, mouth opening. Okay, so um, this is from anesthesiology. These are super easy to find. They're the practice guidelines for difficult airway. And we've gone over a lot of these, but I really like this chart because it kind of takes you down the line of sight that you would do if you're doing a regular laryngoscopy. So you're looking at your upper incisors. You have really long front teeth. You have a prominent overbite. Okay. If you can't bring your mandibular incisors anterior to your maxillary incisors. And then we've talked about most of these things. You want to look at the shape of the palate. 
if they don't look normal, right? So if they don't look like they've had, like they have a very highly arched palate or a narrow palate, you might have trouble. We talked about extending your neck, but also if they have a little short neck. If you don't have much of a distance to go, it's hard to get that line of sight. And if they have a very thick neck, they're likely to have a lot of soft tissue that can get in their way, in your way. So, brief forehand to mask ventilation because that is how you actually save people. It's wonderful to have all these intubation skills and know how to do that. But if you can get oxygen into people, you've got all the time in the world to figure out how to get a breathing. Okay? So I always think of Santa Claus as the most difficult person to mask them with. Okay? So he's got the big fluffy beard. He's got the big jowly face. Lots of excess soft tissue. Um, if someone has a history of sleep apnea, obviously there are thin people who have sleep apnea just with their um, physiology, but a lot of people do have excess soft tissue. Again, with the mandibular protrusion, anyone with abnormal neck anatomy and obese patients. So there's a little slightly hard to read table here at the bottom um, where I talked about the um, hazard ratio for all of these things. <clears throat> so looking at impossible mask ventilation, okay, retrospective study at Michigan, um, it says predictors of impossible mask ventilation. So what is impossible mass ventilation? You don't have entitled CO2 and you don't have perceptible chest rise despite all adjuvants. Okay? It's very rare. And most of the people, if you had four or more of those risk factors we talked about before, those are the people who really had a higher odds of having difficult mass ventilation. And this is what happened to those people with a difficult mass ventilation. So most of them got intubated just fine. But there's a significant number where they also had trouble with intubation and had to go down some of our difficult airway pathways where they either use a different mechanism, you have to wake them up, do an awake fiber optic, wake them up, do a trach, or emergent cry. All right, so when you are intubating somebody, you wanna look at what your, kind of your grade view is. All right, so grade one, you've got that beautiful view of your cords. Grade two, you can see a little bit of the cords at the bottom. Um, grade three, you've just got your epiglottis, and grade four, just okay. So especially when you're first learning how to intubate, you'll often have someone with you, like an attending or whoever is supervising you saying, well, what do you see? And a lot of times people will say, nothing. I don't see anything, right? And that doesn't help, right? Then we don't know what to tell you what to do. We just get scared and take it away and then we then we do your intubation for you. So if you can tell us what you're seeing. So do you see any structures? Do you see cords? Do you see um, epiglottis? Do you still see the tongue? Do you still teeth? So kind of give more information, and that will help um, whoever supervising you um, get you to success. All right. What you also want to do in is, is an exam for an emergency surgical airway. Okay, so patients who are difficult to mask or intubate are often difficult to trach for many of the same reasons or perform a cricoid. So get in the practice of finding the cricothyroid membrane on yourself and everybody else. So as part of your airway exam, when you're checking pyramental distance, doing all these other things, go ahead and, um, and incorporate that. Because people are terrible at this, right? People are not good at finding the cricothyroid membrane when you're first starting to do it. So it's a good thing to practice. So you think you might be in trouble based on your airway exam. So what do you do? So the best thing to do is call for help, right? Whenever you're thinking maybe I should call for help, just call for help. <laughs> um, so try not to make anything worse. You can often buy time with um, additional oxygen, non-invasive ventilation if they're an appropriate candidate, um, bag mask. If you can keep them spontaneously ventilating, you have a significant um, help on yourself. And remember that your first view is going to be your best view. 
even with the best, smoothest laryngoscopy, you cause some tissue damage and some bleeding that's going to make your view worse. So you don't want to just kind of try it if you think something won't go well because your first one is going to be your best one. And don't be shy about enlisting help. You can always send people away. There's still, I think it's getting less and less, but there's still this silly ego trip thing about like, well, I can handle everything. I'm not going to call anybody. Call everybody. If you have to send them away because you got the tube in and it ended up being just fine, that's great. But if you don't want to be in a situation where you have to emergently call someone who can't come fast enough. So have a plan and a backup plan and another plan after that. And assign people to that plan by name. So this is the kind of team building stuff you do in sim and other things where you don't just shout it to the room, like somebody get me this, because it will never come. So you assign a specific person, like Esmeralda, you will stand by the airway bag and give me the bougie. Don't close that loop before you're in an emergent situation so everyone's clear on what they need to do. Positioning. So a lot of times when you come to the floor or come to intubate somebody, there's like pillows everywhere and just all, all this stuff. So take off pillows, blankets, everything. You need to be able to see your whole patient, especially their chest. Um, get the head of the bed off. You need to be able to get close. Get the side rails down. Just make it as, as good as you can get it. Um, your goal is to get them in kind of a sniffing position, like this gentleman here. And a lot of our patients require this kind of position, right? So you're going to need a lot of towels behind the head to kind of get them in that sniffing position. Um, I use folded blankets or sheets to put under their head. I feel like people wiggle around too much on pillows and other stuff, and you want them to be in a firm position. Um, I'm a big fan of reverse Trendelenburg, especially for patients who are obese. You get gravity to help you keep the stomach and everything down, and it increases your FRC, so you may have a little bit more time if you get, in, if you get into a pickle. Um, you want to have the patient at a height that's comfortable for you, so about your xiphoid process. So don't be shy about moving the bed, kind of getting things in a position you, you want them to be. Um, and then pre-oxygenation, again, another plug for pre-oxygenation. So consider methods you can leave on with induction and intubation. You can leave high flow on. If you have two sources of oxygen, you can keep that high flow going while you bag or do whatever else you need to do. So preparing for success. So you need clear team rules, right? So it's kind of like running a little tiny coat. Um, you need a medication person, you need a main airway person, and a helper backup person. And that helper backup person needs to be close. So depending on your experience and how difficult you think this is going to be, um, that person may stand right behind them to come in and help and troubleshoot. You should have someone to get extra equipment if you need it, adjust the bed, someone needs to be recording, someone needs to be watching vital signs. So more kind of site prep to prepare for success here. So vital signs, blood pressure, EKG, pulse ox, all should be working. And that sounds silly, like why would they not be working? But I think we've all come to an emergency and, you know, you see a blood pressure up and you're like, when was that? And it was half an hour ago, right? Or it keeps cycling, right? Blood pressure cuff keeps cycling. We don't know what's happening. Well, I know what's happening. They don't have a blood pressure. Um, so make sure that you have all the information you need to take good care of the patient. Um, if they're tenuous, have a pulse person. So you usually have an extra person who can just be on the femoral pulse and let you know if it's strong, weak, gone, all that kind of stuff. So medications, ready and appropriately labeled, including the concentration. So I've, I've seen people like, like one of our nurses will drop a medicine and give it to somebody and then you, you give it and it's not labeled. Never ever do that. <laughs> 
So never, ever administer a medication from a syringe that isn't properly labeled unless you had the, the vial in your hand, the syringe in your hand, you drew it up and you gave it. And there was no, no travel in between. Um, make sure that you have pressors ready to go. Preferably only one person should be titrating medications. Um, like if, you know, if you're giving the induction medications or your nurse is giving induction medications, they should also be titrating pressors and everything else. But if you have more than one person in the game, make sure that you are talking to each other. Because what you don't want to happen is you give a bolus of pressor because you see the pressure's low and the nurse has gone like doubled your pressors and then all of a sudden your pressure's too full, right? So you want to make sure that everybody is talking to each other. And again, reliable, reliable IV access. IV bag to gravity that's actually dripping. Take it off the pump, don't push meds at the headlock. Um, I'm sure you've all come to come to you know codes or emergencies where the person is is decorated with IVs, but they're not actually in, right? So when you say when they say like, oh, you know, you, but we have an 18, that's great. Go check it yourself, flush it, make sure it goes because you don't want to find that out when you know half of your medications have gone. Oxygen, make sure it's turned up and working. Um, you may need two sources, so maybe you've got high flow going for passive oxygenation plus an ambient bag. And suction, make sure it's on and working well. If you have to use portable suction, then you have to, but it's not nearly as good. And again, trust but verify, right, to make sure that it's actually really good. Okay, so your airway exam looks really benign. They just were intubated three months ago, and it was easy. Like, everything's cool. So what do you need for just a basic, easy intubation? So laryngoscope, whatever flavor of laryngoscope you enjoy, you always need two endotracheal tubes. Um, why do you need two endotracheal tubes, Andy? You don't have to have them open and everything, but you know sometimes the pilot balloon gets cut on a tooth, someone drops it on the floor, I mean, stuff happens, and you don't wanna be reaching around and getting into bags and stuff. Just have it where you can get at it easily. You need an oral airway, even if you plan an RSI and you're not gonna mask them. If you do run into trouble and you need um, to ventilate, you wanna have that handy appropriately sized for your patient. Nasal airways, I don't use a lot because you can get a lot of trauma and bleeding that will make everything worse. But if it's the only thing, then it's, it's good to know that it's there. And LMA is kind of your rescue that you should have available all the time. Okay, you don't need to have it open, but you need to know where it is. And of course, your mask and anything. So setting up for a tricky one. So you've got Santa Claus and he just had, had a neck surgery and radiation and he was extubated yesterday and he's got struggle, right? like the worst thing you can think of. So there's no universal setup. You know, if, if I could tell you the universal thing that would always work, then I'd be a rich, rich woman. Um, but you're gonna need lots of people and you're gonna need lots of tools, okay, depending on what you need. And keep in mind that the OR may be the best place, again, to intubate these people. So if you have some time, you may need a change of scenery to keep the patient the safest. All right, so this is also from the same guidelines um, for management of the difficult airway. These are the things that need to be on a kind of a difficult airway cart, basically. Um, it's not all inclusive, but basically lots of different laryngoscope blades, um, maybe a video laryngoscope, lots of different sizes, um, things like tube exchangers, stylets, bougies, McGill forceps, all that kind of stuff. Um, Superglottic airways for rescue, like an LMA or the intubating LMAs, depending on what your unit and hospital decides to um, stop. Flexible fiber optic intubation equipment. Um, you need to be able to do emergency invasive airway access. Everyone does this a different way as to what, what they have around for their emergency invasive airway access. 
Um, but basically, the things you need to do are right, or train, whatever kind of you worked out with your institution, and a way to measure entitled CO2. All right, so hopefully this will work. So this is a video from Glidescope. Um, I wanted to run this for you guys because I think probably it's the most common way people are intubating generally, kind of out in the world. Um, and I've seen some some creative uses of Glidescope. So I think it's I think it's worth um, just going through this to talk about. I don't know if this. Is a Thank you. 
So the important take-home message with that that I wanted to emphasize is sometimes when people are teaching GlideScope, um, I've seen people encourage the learner to use the GlideScope like a laryngoscope and try to see the the view and then have the attending look at the, the monitor. And that's not how the GlideScope works, okay? So you're not gonna have the same view between the two of you. It's designed so that what you see on the camera sets it up for the tube to go in the right place. Um, if you wanna use like that kind of method for teaching, you can do a CMAC, which is more uh, designed for that, right? It's just a Mac blade with a, with a camera on it. Um, but with the GlideScope, if you try to do it that way, you'll, you can get into trouble. Um, and I would emphasize that it is extremely tempting when you have that view to kind of try to get the tube in without looking at the mouth. And that's a time where you can catch it on teeth, all that kind of stuff that can be very sad if you have a endotracheal tube that's gone in beautifully but you don't have a pilot balloon anymore. It's a sad day. Oh no, I don't want to see it again. All right, so more difficult airway. You know, this is a super busy slide. I wasn't sure how to make it less busy. Um, but this is the flow chart of difficult um, airway management, okay? Um, so in the beginning here, they talk about kind of the things we've talked about already. So patient assessment, trying to deliver supplemental oxygen whenever possible, and kind of considering the relative merits of basic management choices. So a lot of this is more um, pertinent to the OR, but also applies to airway management kind of in the ICU emergency setting. Um, so awake intubation, again, this really probably shouldn't happen <laughs> if we can avoid it on the floor, but it may be something that you have to do or something that you may want to get the patient to the OR if you can. Um, intubation after induction of general anesthesia. So I'm a simple woman. I really like to have a flow chart. So you've induced your general anesthesia, right? And you intubate and everything's amazing and you're fine. So you're done with your flow chart then. If it hasn't been amazing, then you start following down this way, okay? Now it says, consider calling for help. I would call for help, right? If things aren't going the way you expect them to go, just call for help. And then the next decision tree is face mask ventilation adequate or not adequate, right? So if you're adequate, oh, you can go down this non-emergency pathway and kind of think about alternative approaches to intubation, um, kind of what, what you want to do. If it's not adequate, then you need to try a supraglottic airway, right? So an LMA. If that's not adequate, then you're going down your emergency pathway. And again, call for help is here, but it should be way up here too. So if you've gotten to this point, I hope the help is already there and, and actively helping you. Um, the important thing with this is this that old saying about like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over again and expecting a different result. So if something's not working, you need to try something else. And if nothing is working, then don't be afraid of doing emergency invasive airway access, right? Way better to get a crike or a trach or something else than die of hypoxic um, brain damage. Okay, so techniques for difficult intubation. Um, it's a big long list here. Awake, blind, again, haven't seen much blind intubation, but hopefully, hopefully not your <laughs> first choice. Um, fiber optics, supraglottic airway, like an intubating LMA. Lots of different laryngoscope blades. Light wand, some people still love it. I think with GlideScope it's used a lot less. And then video laryngoscopy. Techniques for difficult ventilation, okay? Um, you can jet, 
you can um, do a supraglottic airway for that as well, two-person mask, oral airways, things like that. Okay, so quick talk about who gets a rapid sequence intubation, okay? It's most of what our kind of emergency intubations are going to be. So anybody with a full stomach, so recent or unknown oral intake, they just ate a steak, they get an RSI. If you don't know when they last ate, they get an RSI. Um, if you are called because they are aspirating and not protecting their airway, RSI. Um, not everyone with diabetes has gastroparesis, but a lot of them do. If they have GERD with uncontrolled symptoms, especially without food. If they tell you that every time they lay flat at night, even if they had dinner like four hours ago, they get reflux, they should probably be an RSI. Trauma. So you can be eight hours away from your last meal, but if you had a car accident in that time, probably everything's still in your stomach. Um, anybody with a bowel obstruction, prior surgery, like esophagectomy, it's just a pouch there, just waiting waiting to betray you once you put them off to sleep. Okay? If they have an NG tube in place, please put it on suction. Okay? If they have a G tube, put it to gravity. Um, there are patients who may benefit from an NG tube prior to intubation. All this depends on you know what they look like, how urgently they need to be intubated, all of these other things. Sometimes placing an NG tube can make people vomit and make everything worse but sometimes it can be helpful. Um, also, just consider an RSI if you're dealing with like Santa Claus and you're pretty sure you're not gonna be able to mass ventilate really well and you don't wanna kind of mess with that stage, just do an RSI. Um, most of the intubations y'all are gonna be seeing are, are an RSI. Okay, so a brief foray into neuromuscular blocking. Um, so succinylcholine is an awesome drug. Excellent intubating conditions, super quick, duration is short, um, you're paralyzed for about five to 10 minutes. It's metabolized by pseudocolonesterase, so unless you have pseudocolonesterase deficiency, um, you should be able to metabolize it. But what are the contraindications besides? So increased intraocular pressure, if you have someone with an open globe out in injury, don't give them succinylcholine. Increased ICP is a little bit controversial. There's some folks who um, believe that it's more the intubating part that, than the sucs that raises your ICP, but it's certainly a consideration that you want to think about. In-stage renal disease is a relative contraindication. Um, and the big one here, so I put it in bold, is the hyperkalemia, okay? So you want to think about the risk of hyperkalemia with burns, trauma, prolonged inactivity, um, denervation, and spinal cord injuries. So if you have extrajunctional receptor prol proliferation, like if you have been bed-bound or burned or spinal cord injury, um, you can have a normal potassium to start. When you give that succinylcholine, you're going to have this potassium release from all those extra receptors that can lead to hyperkalemia and very, very bad problems. Um, so for me, I often feel like with emergency intubations, I don't have enough information to know if succinylcholine is safe. Um, so if you have somebody who's been hospitalized for two weeks, if they can tell me, oh, you know, I walk to the bathroom, I walk around the unit, I do all these things, it's probably okay. But if you think they've mostly been bed bound for a week or two, I, I don't give them sex in the And often you, you don't have um, all the information you would want to know that it's safe to give. Um, other side effects to look out for, bradycardia, allergic reactions, and we talked about the increased ICP. So what's our other option? Rocuronium, almost as good, okay, um, as far as onset um, to good paralysis for intubation. You have to dose it appropriately though. So it's 1.2 mg per kg when you're doing an RSI, okay? If you're doing a kind of a routine OR intubation where you're gonna mask for a little while and wait three minutes, it's 0.6. So you have to make sure you're giving enough. Um, I think our kind of pre-drawn rock files come in 50. 
because often people will hand you one one syringe and then just call it a day. You uh, you usually need more than that. So usually 100 milligrams is kind of the recipe. It's going to hang around a while, um, especially if your excretion is prolonged. So you have biliary disease or it's biliary and renal failure. Um, please, please, please ensure that you have adequate sedation post-intubation. Okay? It should never happen that you are intubated with a large dose of rocuronium and people say, well, they're just not moving around. Well, they're not moving around because they're paralyzed and you haven't given them any sedation. So don't don't get into that situation. You can reverse rocuronium in a number of different ways, but often with somebody who's being intubated for respiratory distress, the risk of reversing that that um, paralysis is not worth the benefit that you would get because you're not going to excavate them. All right, so cricoid pressure. Um, so is it good or is it bad? It's been generally considered the standard of practice, got my quote fingers there, for many years to decrease the risk of aspiration. So the general idea sounds amazing, right? So you're compressing the lumen of the esophagus to prevent aspiration during intubation. And this is the kind of some of the original pictures showing how you, I like the, the arrows going forward of like this is where your force should go, um, to smoosh the esophagus so that nothing can come up. So um, I didn't do like a, the polling fancy thing, but we can do hand raising because there's not that many people. Um, so cricoid pressure for RSI, who uses it every time they intubate in an RSI? Cool. Never. I hate it. Okay, cool. Depends on the patient. Okay. Depends on my mood. All right, so it seems like we're kind of mixed between, probably tie between none of the time and depends on the clinical situation. All right, so it's a very spirited debate. So if you ever want to, like, I, I always like um, polite scientist fights in journals where you'll have a paper and then someone writes a letter and then someone writes a letter to that letter and then they go back and forth. They're really fun to read, and there's a lot about it with cricoid pressure. So PRO has been around a long time, traditional part of rapid sequence intubation, and a lot of guidelines still recommend it. And there may be medical legal implications, possibly, so if you have someone that you do a rapid sequence on and you don't use cricoid pressure and they aspirate, if they take you into court and say, like, well, this was the standard of care, you should have done it, and that's why they aspirated, that's a possibility. Um, against cricoid pressure, so there's no consensus on how to actually apply proper cricoid pressure, right? So there's, like, two fingers and three fingers and different things. Um, it's difficult to quantify the correct pressure. There are some papers that say you do like a, a light pressure while the patient's awake and then a heavier pressure once they're off to sleep because the light pressure won't make them vomit, but then they can tolerate when they're asleep. Um, accuracy of people finding the cricoid is poor. So just as we talked about before with cricothyroid, um, trying, to, trying to find your cricothyroid membrane, people aren't awesome at this, right? So we're pushing all sorts of things. Um, it can definitely make intubation more difficult. So it can make your view worse. It could induce vomiting if you're smooshing down too hard on an awake person. It's no longer part of ACLS. They took it out. And a lot of European guidelines no longer recommend it either. And then Cochrane says that there's um, an absence of evidence regarding the effectiveness and risk of cricoid pressure during RSI for intubation. So that's kind of a solid myth, right, from the Cochrane people. Like, I, I don't know, maybe. So kind of my personal opinion about um, RSI and cricoid We'll probably never have a definitive trial of cricoid pressure for rapid sequence intubation. It's a rare outcome. Um, the number of patients required to give you enough power will be super duper high. Um, everyone's just going to keep arguing and having, you know, spirited scientist fights in the literature about it. 
I'm hopeful that as we get better at point of care ultrasound, maybe we'll have a better evaluation of the stomach to try to figure out if there's a lot of stuff in there that puts you at risk for aspiration, and also looking at airway anatomy. There's also some question with cricoid pressure of you know exactly where your esophagus is. You can push with the correct PSI and everything else, but your esophagus is just not running that way in that particular patient. Um, so maybe if we're able to look at airway anatomy, we'll be able to say, oh, you know, we can just compress right there and it'll be great. So at this point, without any institutional guidelines where you practice, it's really at the discretion of the individual clinician to decide. And that's kind of reflected in our group here that people are doing all sorts of things, right? And unfortunately, we don't have a definitive trial or anything to say, you know, this is definitely the right thing to do. And these are just references from the, the whole thing, and I'm happy to take any questions.